Welcome back to the History of the Barbarians podcast, Season 1, Episode number 17, Adrianople, Part 3. My name is Josh Hirschman. When we last spoke, it was August 9th, 378 CE, about 8 miles north of the city of Adrianople in modern-day Adirne, Turkey, very near the border with Bulgaria. The Gothic army had established their wagon train into a lager, a circular wagon defense, on the top of a small hill. The Romans, led by the Eastern Emperor, Valens, had marched from Adrianople over eight long hours through difficult terrain in the hot August heat. The leader of the Goths, Fritigern, had sent emissaries to Valens at the foot of the hill to negotiate terms for peace, or perhaps to buy more time for his scavenging Gruthungai cavalry to return to his army. The first war council, or concilium, was called in Adrianople, where the decision to confront Fritigern and his Gothic forces before his nephew, Gratian, and his army could come to Valens's aid was considered. Once committed to deploying his army, Valens called for another war council to discuss the options. We do not know who exactly was in the council at the foot of the hill where the Goths had decided to set up their lager, but we can assume the key officers in his army would be involved. One of those involved was Ricimer, an advisor of Western Roman Emperor Gratian, who was sent ahead of his army and was mentioned specifically by Amianus. We can assume that Sebastianus, the Roman general who had some small-scale successes early in the summer against the Goths, would have probably been present. Additionally, Victor, the Sarmatian general in charge of the cavalry, would certainly have been there. A man named Equitus, a tribune who was related to Valens in some way, was in the council as well, as he is mentioned as declining the offer to become a hostage during negotiations, as he had just escaped Gothic captivity recently. He was captured at the Battle of Debaltum, which occurred the previous year near the town of Debalt in modern-day southeastern Bulgaria. Here the Goths wiped out a Roman army, killing the Roman commander Barzemius, or Barzirmis, and capturing the high-ranking tribune. Equitus certainly was not interested in going back into Gothic captivity after escaping from his last ordeal. Valens was therefore surrounded by experienced senior officers, but those senior officers were not supervising their troops. The issue at hand in this council was how to negotiate or respond to the emissaries sent by Fritigern. As I mentioned in last week's episode, number 16, there was a back and forth amongst Fritigern and Valens through emissaries about negotiations pri- directly prior to this battle. It is during the second concilium or council where the senior officers of the Roman army were away from their men, right as these negotiations were about to begin, an apparent lack of leadership leads to a breakdown in discipline. This breakdown allows the right flank of the Roman army, consisting of, the, of elite cavalry and archers, to start to engage the, with the Gothic forces. Valens had his headquarters right behind this portion of the line, which had inadvertently began the battle. These elite units of Valens' guard, called the Scolia Palatine, that were the culprits in the undisciplined action of the early engagement. Thusaurus, a tribune, was the name of the commander of this Scala. Amianus mentions another leader named Cassio as well. But it is during this time that these leaders allow the Scutari, who were, again, an elite cavalry unit, to engage with the Goths. 
it is impossible to say for certain why Busaris, who we don't know really anything about, engaged the Goths. Maybe it was something that he ordered. Perhaps he ordered his men to scout for intelligence about the Gothic defenses. He could have had his men probing for weaknesses along the Gothic lager. Maybe these troops, without orders, attacked the Goths. The Scoliae Palatinae had been created 50 years prior by Constantine and were filled with barbarians many times. The Goths would have been many of these forces in the east, given the historical proximity to the Eastern Roman Emperor. During the Gothic Rebellion, starting in 376, just two years prior, the empire had expelled or turned on and rejected many of the Goths under employment of the imperial administration. One could then postulate that these Scutori were no longer Goths, but were inexperienced Romans fresh off of training as replacements for their expelled Gothic cavalrymen. This could explain why the normally disciplined and experienced troops would have engaged without an order from Valens. What further supports this theory is a quote from Amianus about the Scutari after the engagement. Their retreat was as cowardly as their advance had been rash. This could very well be the description of poorly trained and inexperienced Roman troops. Even if technically described as elite, they were serving as replacements for recently expelled Gothic Scutari. This is speculation, of course. There are a multitude of reasons this early engagement could have happened, but what we do know is that the armies were drawn in after this early skirmishing. But we do think that these troops engaged without orders from the emperor, because the emperor was in the process of exchanging hostages to negotiate with Fritigern as this skirmishing occurred. And as the skirmishing continued, more of the army was brought into the battle, and these troops, the Scutari, apparently retreated rather quickly and shamefully after the roll in the start of the Battle of Adrianople. Now, once engaged, the rest of the army begins to become more entangled as the action spreads. As the Roman center, which was made up of infantry, began to become engaged in the battle, the Roman left, the other half of the cavalry, which made up the rear of the column on the march from Adrianople, was just now finally falling into place along the Roman line. Meanwhile, on the top of the hill behind the lager, it is reported that during these beginning stages, or perhaps even before the engagement began, the Goths had lit bonfires on top of the hill in order to shield their forces from the Romans. The idea, obviously, was to confuse the Romans and disguise troop numbers and the movements of the Goths. The Goths had committed reinforcements to their left, the Roman right, to strengthen their position and to push back those elite skirmishers of the Romans. These Roman Scuturi were elite, but they were skirmishers. Their job was not to directly engage an enemy, but to be the eyes and ears of the army when the army was deploying. In battle, they would flank and strike quickly from a distance, perhaps chase down routing enemy, and harass enemy troops, not engage in direct hand-to-hand -hand fighting. The fact that these skirmishers are directly engaging means that the Goths could easily push the unsupported Scorati back, as it was difficult for Valens to support them since his army had not been fully deployed yet, and the council consisted of all the senior leaders of the Roman army, therefore weakening or at least slowing any communication throughout the Roman ranks. So as the Goths are reinforcing their left, the Roman right, the Roman left, 
the cavalry that were bringing up the rear of the Roman column that marched for all the way from Adrianople was now coming up on their side, on their position of the line on the left. They began to push against the Gothic forces on the Gothic right, Roman left. Meanwhile, the Roman center then pressed up the hill to attack the Gothic lager. As the right of the line was still engaging with the Gothic left side of the, of the lager, the Goths on the other side of the lager began to give way to the Roman left cavalry forces. The Romans are beginning to take the hill from the Goths, and in all of this action, the Roman left pushes harder. During this push, the Gothic right began to collapse, but the Roman cavalry extended itself out of position. And it is at this time that Alatheus and Saphrax come onto the scene with the Gruthungi cavalry. As Amianus states it, they shot forward like a bolt from on high. The Gruthungi cavalry were scavenging for food in the countryside when they received word from Fritigern of the threat of Valens' army. It is perfectly timed, this arrival of the cavalry, and it would stabilize the Gothic defenses. The Roman cavalry are flanked by the Goths and then cut off and surrounded. The Roman cavalry are slaughtered by the Goths. Fritigern seizes the momentum by reinforcing his center and sending his infantry down the hill to attack the Roman center. As the full weight of the infantry of the Goths and Romans are engaged, the Roman infantry's left is now exposed since the route of their cavalry on their left, Gothic right. The Grithungi cavalry flanks the Roman infantry and folds it onto itself. The Roman infantry is packed on top of each other, inhibiting their fighting ability. As the Goths continue to press the Roman infantry, restricting the leg legionnaires' room to maneuver, the casualties begin to pile up. For a time, the two lines of infantry clash like the rams of ships and thrusting with all their might. The thousands of infantrymen push, slash, and hack for a time, until the Goths, with the benefit of their fierce fighting infantry, the obstruction of visibility by the dust of the battlefield and the bonfires, and the flanking cavalry, begin to push the Roman line back. We think the battle started sometime around 3 p.m., and it now must be past 6 p.m. After a time, the Goths finally begin to inflict enough casualties, including many blue-on-blue -blue casualties in the Roman ranks. Uh, reportedly, the legions finally break. Further adding to the difficulties of the Romans, Amianus claims that such were the volume of casualties that many of the legionnaires were slipping on the blood-soaked battlefield watered by their fallen comrades. Several of the Roman leaders see the center break, and they themselves, including Victor, Ricamirus, and Saturninus, escape the battlefield presumably with some men. It is then reported that the rest of the Roman troops begin to flee and the route is completely on. Amianus reports that the Goths slaughter the Romans until nightfall. Even during the dark, moonless night, the Goths continue to roam the battlefield, plundering the dead bodies and executing survivors. Of which, Amianus states that the field was covered with the carcasses of men, horses, and blood. Two-thirds total of the Roman army is killed or captured. We have no reliable numbers, but one could assume that a portion of the third that makes it out of the battle were injured as well. One would then see a casualty rate at or above 70% of the army possibly, which is an incredibly high number. 
when you look at many other battles of antiquity, numbers typically don't reach that high. The fate of Valens in this battle is up to some debate. One report is that he is hit by a Gothic arrow on the battlefield and falls there. Another story goes that he, his bodyguards, and some of his eunuchs escape to a nearby farmhouse and the Goths surround the building. The Goths, not knowing who was inside, set fire to the farmhouse instead of trying to assault it. When another Roman soldier jumps out of a second-story window of the farmhouse, he tells the Goths of whom is inside, and the Goths quickly try to put out the fire, but to no avail, and Valens perishes in the farmhouse fire. We have no way of being certain that either one of these stories are true, but what we do know is that his body is not found on the battlefield, his armor is not found, and we do not have any definitive proof of his surviving the battle. Some of the Goths continue to plunder the dead on the battlefield. Presumably, they kill some or most of the wounded men and take some captive for interrogation. The Goths are still in a precarious position as they are constantly in search of food, supplies, money, and weaponry. Even despite their victory at Adrianople, their safety and security is not guaranteed. The dead Roman soldiers would have been a resource that the Goths would have had to take advantage of, certainly for their weapons and military supplies, but also some wealth that could be found irresistible by the Goths on their bodies. The surviving Romans, meanwhile, escape any way they can. There's no real talk of mass concentration of their forces after the battle, although many of the leaders like Ricamiras and Saturninus were experienced military officers and would have probably tried to bring some order to the troops around them. Now, all told, this battle cost the Romans greatly. Amianus states that the majority of the army, two-thirds by his account, are killed or captured by the Goths. Included in this casualty count is, of course, Valens, Sebastianus, another general named Valerinus, Trajan, Aquitus, a prominent tribune named Potentus, and 35 tribunes total of the empire. The loss of the emperor, which was the second emperor to die in battle to the Goths, the last being Decius back at the Battle of Abritus in 251 at the hands of Caniva, which you could rewind back several podcasts and check out our mini-series on the crisis of the mid-third century to learn that story. The military loss at the Battle of Adrianople was bad enough. The loss of experienced officers and 35 tribunes, this amount of senior leaders falling by the sword would have stricken the empire with fear. Fear that the empire probably had not experienced since Hannibal's successes in the Italian peninsula in the Second Punic War. One can infer from Amianus that much of the Roman army just ran away as best they could without regard for anything but their own life. And so that's it. That is basically what we know about the Battle of Adrianople. Although there are many writers of antiquity who wrote about the battle, there is only one primary source for the battle itself, and that is Amianus. What we do know, though, is that this battle has stuck in the minds of many historians as a turning point for the Romans, and certainly for our Goths. Immediately after this battle, though, 
the Goths and the Romans, both, will be in a very precarious situation. The future is not set for our Goths, as they now have a, won a major victory over the Romans, but they're still not in a secure position. They will need to act quickly, as they still have at least one large Roman army within a couple weeks' march of them, under the command of the capable young Western Emperor Gratian. There's still the matter of a third of the Roman army that survived the battle, who could consolidate and become a threat to them. So, with the pending threat of Roman armies not far away from the Goths, this is a good place to stop. Next week, we will look at the immediate aftermath, picking up with August 10th, 378, the day after the Battle of Adrianople, with our Goths to see what their next moves will be. Some materials that we used for the episode this week were Adrianople, A.D. 378 by Simon McDowell, Rome's Gothic Wars from the 3rd century to Alaric by Michael Kulikowski, Failure of an Empire, Valens and the Roman State in the 4th century by Noel Linsky, Rest Geste by Amianus Marcellinus, Cascading Failure, the Roman Disaster at Adrianople, A.D. 378 by Jeffrey R. Cox, which... I would like to thank listener Scott for the recommendation. This was an interesting article that was very helpful for this episode. And if anyone else has any other recommendations for source material, shoot me your suggestions on the Facebook page or on the Twitter account. Love to have them. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe to follow along on our journey. Please leave me a review on the podcast platform of your preference. Those good ones help others find the podcast. And check out the History of the Barbarians Facebook page and Twitter accounts for some images and additional information on our characters, both this week and overall. And I'd like to thank you for listening. See you next time.